Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We are coming to you live from the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. We are here for the Mackinac Policy Conference, the annual trip up north for the state's business and political leaders to try to get them away from the noise of home and maybe give them a little better insight into some of the challenges that we have in this state. We are going to spend the day today talking to some of those power brokers and talking about how things are going up here on the island. Uh, as always, though, we are unable to take your phone calls this week. Uh, that, that is always a big part of the show when we're home in Detroit. But you can uh, talk with us on Facebook at the WDET page there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. And my first guest today uh, is someone who's very familiar to us here on the show. Representative Dan Keldy is a Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th District in Washington. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Thanks for having me Good back. Good to see you up here on Mackinac. How's your Mackinac been so far? Uh, busy, yeah. but I like it that way. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> meeting a lot of folks. You know, this is It's a really efficient way to sit down with a lot of people across the spectrum and have conversations that if we tried to schedule it, it would probably take a month to get done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I think uh, some of the folks back home don't always quite get is just the proximity here. Uh, the, the fact that you're sitting uh, often next to somebody uh, who, who lives across the state or, or who you just don't normally see For sure. all the time, it gives you an opportunity to have a conversation that you wouldn't have had before. Yeah, and I mean, obviously with so much media presence here it's a chance to talk to a lot of people as well yes right yes. here in media row where there's yes. all sorts of buzz where going everybody on. is uh, walking through right right in the middle of it all right so uh, yesterday we heard from robert Mueller for the first time uh, since he has been investigating the trump campaign uh, he says he is not interested in divulging any more information in front of congress uh, he says read the report is that good enough for you well, I think people should read the report, for sure. But I think we have to accept the fact that because of the way the report was released, the way Attorney General Barr, I think, really twisted the intent of the report, and of course, the president's continuous pronouncements that it was a full exoneration, it's important that we get from the Mueller report the facts from Mr. Mueller. I mean, if anybody wants to know what's in the Mueller report, Mueller's probably the best source. So uh, explain to the listeners where we are with the release of this report. Uh, at first, they just gave us a synopsis, uh, but then later there was <clears throat> a fuller release of the report, but it was pretty heavily redacted. Right. Have members of Congress been able to look at all at the unredacted report yet? No. Not? Not yet. Not at all. Okay. Yeah, and it's, and it's obvious that this is a problem because, you know, I've gone through the report and there are aspects of, of it that are a little bit hard to follow when there's long passages that are completely redacted. We have no idea what's in there, so we don't have any idea how to read the rest of it in full context. And here's the thing. We're members of Congress. You know, a lot of folks have their opinions about us, but we make decisions based on really sensitive information all the time. All the time, right. Just uh, the week, the week, last week we were in session, we had uh, a full classified briefing from the Secretary of State, from the, the, you know, the Director of National Intelligence, classified material being given to us about Iran. Mm -hmm. We can handle it. 
I mean, I know that they have right. You don't go out and tell everybody all, yeah. all about what you saw. And I know they're concerned that some of this information will, will, will leak out. But we live in a democracy where sometimes it gets a little messy, but we ought to err on the side of full disclosure, of making sure that the people who are charged with making decisions have access to the full information in order to make those decisions. And especially, especially in a matter as weighty as the question as to whether or not the President of the United States may have violated U.S. law. I have not come to my complete conclusion on all of those questions, even though the information certainly is not good. And I haven't come to any conclusion about what we ought to do with it, because I think we need to get the answers to these questions. Mr. Mueller needs to testify. He doesn't want to. But this is a guy who has made a whole career of enforcing the law and enforcing subpoenas. Well, and he said he would he said he would appear uh, if he is subpoenaed. I, I, I think what he's saying is he won't have much more to say than what he wrote in, in his report. And and based on what I know about Bob Mueller, that sounds about right. I mean, I, I don't expect that this is somebody who would come uh, and talk a whole lot about his thinking, for instance. Uh, he would say, look, I, I put it all in black and white. He did. But it, until he is in a position to answer questions, even if he answers them by saying the very same words that he's used so far, for example... If he were to have to directly answer the question, did this report exonerate the president of any criminal wrongdoing, his answer would have to be no. Right, right. And he said that yesterday. He said that yesterday, but he said it in a way that the president can take it and twist it any way he wants. There is something about the the iterative process of questions and answers, something that you're very good at, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that reveals the truth. And you can't just take the answer. You have to take the answer in the context of the question, yeah. and I think that's where we need to go. So, so I, I, I think it's really interesting to talk to Democrats, especially even just the Democratic delegation here in Michigan, about the sort of spectrum uh, of where they are in terms of this question of what should be done with the Mueller report. I've talked to some folks who say, listen, we, we absolutely need to start impeachment hearings, some folks are saying uh, I, I, they would vote to impeach. I mean, Justin Amash, who's not even a Democrat, says he thinks the president should be impeached over that. And then there are some people who are saying, let's kind of wait and wait and see a little more about uh, what's going on. Or let's go and do uh, more of the people's business uh, that they're more concerned with. Uh, when you guys talk about these things, uh, how do you reconcile all of that? And how do you land on here's what we're going to do? Well, I think, first of all, on this question of whether we can continue to do the people's business and provide oversight, we have a 200-year history. Walk and chew gum, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, we ought to be able to do that. Um, I am one who's of the view that we have to exhaust the tools that are available to us in order to provide oversight on this president and do our constitutional duty. Included in those tools, ultimately, could be the tool of impeachment. And if it comes to that... If the president, for example, continues to take this position that he's not subject to Article 1 of the Constitution, but only Article 2, um, then I think we're going to have a real problem, and it may be the only tool we have left. But but I think there's another really important point I want to make. We should not, to the extent possible, even consider the political implications of this question. And first of all, I think people who think they know what the political effect would be... are speculating. I don't think we know, and I don't think we can say that, well, since the political effect back in the 90s of the impeachment of Bill Clinton was negative 
for Republicans, that that necessarily means that it's negative or positive for anybody. But you know what? At the end of the day, what difference does it make? Right. Does right. it mean that the Constitution is not the Constitution? Does it mean that the oath I swore is not the oath I swore? I have to make a clear-eyed decision about whether or not I should vote to impeach the President of the United States. And I'm going to tell you, the last thing on my mind <laughs> is what the political implications are for me or for him. And, and as these these situations always are, this has been a real uh, education, I think, for people in the way that the Constitution works, the way that the law works. Uh, there is a process here. And there are a lot of people, I hear from a lot of people who say, why don't they just impeach him now? Why don't they just go ahead and do it? And I always try to sort of explain that they may very well end up doing that, but there are, you know, that's step number 300, and we're at step number 25 yeah. right now. And you can't just leap over all those other, no, you can't. Those other, those other steps and, and get to the end. You have to be able to give honor to the process. Our government is a process. It's a process of tools and authorities that we have to exercise. And, you know, the other thing, it's a lot easy to speculate and to say what you would do yeah. when you don't have the long view of history staring back at you. Sure. I have to answer to my grandchildren about how I handled this moment. I think we're in that kind of a, a moment of gravity where we, we just have to think about it in those terms. I want to explore every avenue we have to get all the facts we can get. Transparency works wonders in a democracy. Uh, put the facts out. And at that point in time, if I see no other conclusion, I am not one who will take off the table for some political calculation the tool of impeachment. This president may very well warrant impeachment. I'm just not there yet. Yeah. Um, we talked with uh, Senator Peters yesterday about getting the Defense Department to commit to cleaning up PFAS-contaminated sites such as Wordsmith Air Force Base, which is uh, in your district. Uh, talk about the need to to sort of pivot on this whole issue and try to figure out not just how to stop putting this stuff into the environment, but clean up the mess that we've already made. Well, this is where I think the Defense Department has fallen short. You know, we at the federal level have a lot of responsibilities. One is to protect public health through the Environmental Protection Agency. They have fallen short. But at the bare minimum, when the federal government itself is the polluter, we're not just a, a, you know, an agency of government that has public health as one of our missions, but we're actually, through the Defense Department, polluting these sites. We have a unique and very special obligation to clean up the mess we created. And so I've been really disappointed that the Defense Department continues to put its other interests ahead of cleaning up this problem. And I get it. If they ask for money to clean up PFAS, that's less money they have for the armaments that they consider a higher priority. But I consider this a national defense question. I need to defend the people that I work for against the threat of, of chemicals that can give them cancer. That's national security, and they ought to be responsible for cleaning up that problem. And we're going to continue to push them to do so. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the authorization, the, the finance authorization bills are the way that you do that. Are there other levers though, that we ought to be reaching for to try to put pressure on not just uh, uh, the military, but, but, but other arms of government that, that also have this issue? Yes, for sure. One would be to have an enforceable legal standard for drinking water. Right now, the um, federal government only has a health advisory when it comes to PFAS. If we have a standard that says this is a number that you cannot uh, exceed, 
without having the obligation to deal with the problem. We need to hold ourselves accountable to that. I don't believe that we should require that in order for the federal government to clean up its own mess, because we know this stuff is dangerous and we ought to do something about it. But one of the ways to force that issue is to either have state or what I would hope would be a national standard for drinking water, groundwater, PFAS contamination, and hold ourselves accountable to that standard. Yeah. Right now we don't have that. Uh, I, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about a, a state issue. Uh, Governor Whitmer is expected today to sign the first significant auto insurance reform legislation in 46 years here uh, in Michigan. Uh, there was a study that was released in April that found that, you know, we always think that Detroit drivers are the ones who pay the highest rates uh, for auto insurance. In fact, it's Flint drivers uh, who have the highest rates, probably for very much the same reasons that, uh, that we see those rates in Detroit. Um, this is something that your constituents have to be talking to you about. I'm wondering what they're, what they're telling you. I mean, I hear about it all the time. You know, people don't necessarily distinguish between federal and state officials. So sure. when I go into the community, it's like, do something about auto insurance. And, you know, I explain that we don't have a particular role in that, but that doesn't really get the answer. <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? Here's the thing. I, you know, I don't know if I would agree with every aspect of the agreement, and I don't know if there's anybody here, to, you know, today that agrees with every aspect. But I do think it sends a really strong message that in divided government, an issue that has been talked and talked and talked to death actually got resolved. We ought to take some heart with that. Yeah. You know, this has been, think about how long we've been talking about auto insurance. It's in my know. entire life. Yeah. Even, I mean, at this conference, it seems like it's come up every year. And of course, folks thought, well, if you can't get it done when, the, when one party controls all of government, how in the world are you going to get it done in a divided government five months in? It's a settled issue. Yeah. So congratulations to uh, to the Republican leadership and the and the in the legislature and Democratic leadership as well. I know Jim Ananick was uh, involved in this. Mm -hmm. A guy from my hometown of Flint mm -hmm. who gets this. And congratulations to the governor. You know, leadership. This is one of my professors taught me this a long time ago. <laughs> leadership is the act of disappointing your own supporters at a rate they can absorb. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a great. Well, so that's a great line, folks. You know, some people might be disappointed with some aspects of this. Yeah, but you just move on and you live to fight another day and try to solve other problems. Well, and there's still an opportunity to keep talking about it, right? right. Uh, once you kick that door open and say we've made this change. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about some other changes. Maybe we can keep moving the ball forward. For sure. I mean, I think one of the things we have to look at is what this means for like a public hospital, for example, who may not get the kind of reimbursements they get for the care that they provide for people who might, you know, suffer difficult accidents. We want to deal with that. Yeah. But that's a technical issue that we can get at. Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about infrastructure, um, uh, both in the context of national and local politics. Um, uh, you know, the, the president walked out of this meeting with House Democrats on infrastructure and made a big stink about it. Uh, I, I thought when he was elected that that this was the, the, the one issue that we had real opportunity to move the ball on. This is something that he has talked about for a really long time, and it's something that uh, the Congress, I, I thought, uh, would be excited about doing. Why isn't this working? Why aren't we getting anywhere on that issue? Well, it's hard to take. I mean, I, I have a lot of differences with this president. The biggest frustration I have with him is that you can't, you can't take him at his word. You can't take him at his word when he says he's with you. And you actually can't take him at his word when he says he's not with you. 
So when he walked out of that meeting the other day, I think it was because he had a staged event that was already ready to go. He had some posters already posters made Posters were up, printed. Right? It was amazing how quickly they were able to print these posters <laughs> 10 seconds after he walked out of the meeting. Um, you know, he's a day trader. He's a political day trader, and he looks to win the moment. Uh, I think the moment is going to occur again where folks are saying, hey, Mr. President, I thought you were going to get this done. Why aren't you getting it done? It's clear he's the one who walked away from this. So I think he bears this responsibility. And, of course, what did he say? He said, stop investigating me or I won't work with you. Us and we didn't run on investigating the president. We ran on an economic agenda. On governing, right? And so, you know, this is not like the Nancy Pelosi playbook to investigate him. It's not, you know, the Chuck Schumer playbook. It's what we refer to as the James Madison playbook. Right. right. We're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, locally, we, we also, you know, have this incredible infrastructure bill that's due. Um, and and uh, no question, I think the settlement over auto insurance probably gives us uh, some momentum to, to be able to try to make a deal on roads. Um, but talk about the federal government's role, uh, if there is one uh, that you see, in, in helping with that local that local uh, disinvestment that, that, uh, that we've had for so long. So I think the federal role comes in two forms. One is to get this stuff to scale. I mean, what the state of Michigan is capable of doing is important. But given the age of our infrastructure, the condition that it's in, we're not going to be able to get to scale just with state resources. So the federal government has to go big in order to support these state-based initiatives. The other thing that the federal government has to do, that I'm not convinced that they will unless we really press this, is to help equalize the impact of this investment so that the poorest communities who are really distressed are not in a position where they have to compete for those infrastructure dollars, and, and especially when they have such limited capacity. I think there's a special in, set of unique needs in the most distressed places that the infrastructure bill could address to clean up brownfields, to get finish the job of get rid of, getting rid of abandonment and blight, and allow for those communities to take advantage of infrastructure investment without having to depend on water rate payers or local match. Because if that's going to be the case, a big infrastructure investment could actually exacerbate the differences between the have and have nots yeah. rather than alleviate those differences. Yeah. Okay, Dan Keldy, it's always great to catch up with Thank you here you, on Detroit Today. All Have right. a great time the rest of the time here on Mackinac. I'll do my part. We'll catch up with you again when we're back in Detroit. You got it. All right. Up next, we are going to talk with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Stay with us on Detroit Today.